So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next Tech Stories episode. Today, I have a real tax world celebrity, Poros Kaka. Namaste. Namaste. Poros is a former president of IFA Globally, International Fiscal Association, uh, now honorary president, and the first IFA president from Asia in its history, which is uh, almost 85 years old. Poros is a senior advocate in India and a barrister in England and Wales. As of December of 2022, Poros is also a the president of the Income Tax Appellate Tribunal Bar Association in Mumbai. So we, we will talk definitely about what does it mean. Horus is also trustee at IBFD, International Bureau of Fiscal Documentation. Horus uh, got his LLM from Harvard Law School, and it seems like uh, your specialization is transfer pricing litigation and uh, direct and international tax. I saw that in Chambers and Partners, uh, you are ranked consistently as one of India's leading senior tax advocates. And uh, it even said that you are international face of Indian tax practice. The International Tax Review said that uh, uh, you are one of India's leading tax councils. Considering how many tax specialists are in India, I, I think these are amazing facts. Uh, Porus, uh, welcome to the show. And did I miss anything important about your CV so far? No, thank you. You've been very generous. Thank you. To be honest, uh, it came to me that I should invite you on the podcast after I saw you uh, leading one of the sessions at IFA Global Conference in Berlin last year. Uh, you had such kindness in your eyes and, and some great sense of humor. Where, where's this sense of humor coming from? I've always believed that tax is such a heavy subject. And no matter who your audience is, whether it consists of senior tax officials or, or practitioners or judges, I think to get through an hour, an hour and a half, sometimes two hours, Without without there being some break and 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 light humor, I think then it's it, it it just the whole session loses interest and many people tune off and probably look into their phones and start working on their phones or on their calls. So I think just to remind the audience that this is not something where they fall asleep. It's 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 important. The challenge now is when you uh, when you try to be humorous and in a in an extremely polarized world, you have to be extremely careful about your jokes. And I think now the challenge is that you can literally joke about yourself and nobody else. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's getting crazy. Can I ask what was your childhood like and how did you later de decide to study tax? So I think I was very fortunate. My father was a senior advocate in the tax profession and though it was never said or anyone asked me. I think I was one of the few people who never needed a career guidance course. I need I knew in the fifth grade or the sixth grade that I wanted to be a lawyer. And I think it was just because of being exposed to what I saw that I sort of got enamored by. It. The greatest difficulty was when I actually graduated from law school and I realized how vast the field of law was. That's when I needed some guidance uh, as to what areas, but a few unfortunate incidents at that time. My father passed away before I got my final degree. 
And so the path that he set for me was in the international tax or into the tax field. And I sort of just followed that path, though at that time, probably I was more enamored by constitutional law and the glamorous tort law and other stuff and not necessarily tax law, which was rather uh, probably more boring if you if you described it. But at that point in time, I chose the path which was probably set more than the path that maybe I would have done myself. And I was, I think, very fortunate that the, prof the, the senior that I worked on was extremely probably the most leading individual in India in the international tax field. And when I came back from law school in the United States, that was 1991-92, this was the year when India opened up to the world. So simultaneously as I began my practice, we opened up to the world completely as an economy and therefore we had a huge amount of inflow or interest between the foreign corporations, investors, etc. So I think the timing worked out just, just perfectly as I began my career. As IFA president, I believe you have traveled pretty much everywhere. Which places in the world are the closest to your heart? Oh, I have, I think I have been fortunate to... Uh, I think I, 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 I made it also uh, an endeavor. It was not easy to, during the IFA presidency, I literally had to put my other professional career on hold because uh, I took a great interest in the presidency. When I took charge of IFA, it was a very Eurocentric organization. And I think one of my greatest endeavors was to widen this, the, the, the reach of IFA, whether it was in the Asia Pacific region or in South America. And I believe that if you are going to encourage the regions, you need to be close to them. And when you mean close to them is you have to be, we didn't have that much of Zoom and all that in those days, this was pre-COVID. And I mm -hmm. think to be there personally as a president gave a tremendous boost, especially to the Asian region, and also more importantly to the Latin American region. And I. I'm fortunate to say that I have friends from from Argentina to the uh, Dominican Republic to to Malaysia to Australia to Japan and of course Europe and America and I think uh, I was very fortunate to be welcomed uh, so warmly by all the regions and uh, one of the things especially for the non-English speaking countries that I visited was I would make an endeavor to be able to speak in their local language and speak not as a person with an English diction. So I would actually go to someone who could speak Spanish, Portuguese, and not only learn what I have to say, but try and speak it with the pronunciation and the diction that they would be used to. So it was a, it was a tremendous effort, but I think the, the, the branches significantly appreciated the effort of, of me being there and being there to be able to speak to them in their own language. I probably couldn't do it more than five minutes, but I did make that effort. So I can teach you some Latvian. Yes. Actually, Latvian is coming from ancient Sanskrit. So it's a very... I would, have, uh, I, I would have definitely, wherever I went, I did try to speak at least uh, in that local diction. And, and of course, I think more importantly, be there see how the branch is working, see what Central IFA. So I didn't want it to be some distant organization based in Rotterdam, but someone that reached out and was there for the branches throughout the world. And I think I was very fortunate that this was just before COVID that I retired. When I was at uh, IFA in uh, Mumbai, 
I uh, saw in that uh, in such a business city as Mumbai, I saw a mom with a couple of kids sleeping overnight on pedestrian walk um, next to my hotel. Uh, and other people said that uh, they actually may be quite happy about their life. How can it be? And uh, where do you find your inner peace and happiness? I mean, I, I, I'm not sure whether I would agree with the statement that they would be they would be happy with their life. I'm sure uh, probably the answer is uh, if they could find a better place, they, they would be. Um, I think all of us have the opportunity to do good. What I what I have chosen really is, and I and I think I find the best time that I spend is with rescues, and I think this is in the context of animals. So I'm I'm I have been associated since I came back and before also from the United States with certain charities in Mumbai, which prevent the. Uh, which prevents the killing and and, 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 and and of stray animals. And the time that I spend with them, now of course the time may not be that much, but I give them uh, my, my, my time pro bono and all that. But I think the time that I have spent in these, uh, in these shelters, the time that I've been able to do is perhaps some of the most satisfying parts of my life. So I think the greatest time, and of course in my house I have since childhood been with rescue animals always and we've had a variety of animals from 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 birds to parrots to cats to dogs and even a squirrel so we've had a huge variety who lived and lived hopefully happily in my house but i think there's an opportunity for all of us to do well and again as i said whether it's with with humans or animals i think it's 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 their uh, it's it's their choice great great initiative i also wanted to ask about social networks that uh, i saw that you are not on linkedin and uh, just a little bit on twitter what are your relations to social media i find twitter as a good source of information but coming from again as i said i look at two things one is the 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 world is a bit polarized today and um, and secondly, I think I am careful, uh, especially after I assume the role of the IFA presidency, because IFA being a neutral organization, um, I learned very quickly that you can upset uh, you can upset many people with what you say and what you don't say. So I think that caution continues in my in my social sphere. I haven't joined LinkedIn. The only reason being, I I am relatively short of time, and I just uh, find that the amount of networks. I'm not even on Instagram. I, the amount of networks that I am on, which is really WhatsApp, Twitter, and and Facebook, already takes sufficient amount of my time. Um, so that's the only reason I don't want to add to more uh, on the social media. But I think uh, I'm extremely careful of what what I see on social media for many reasons. And I think one of them was the role that I played as a leader of a neutral organization. Mm. How easy or difficult it was to lead IFA? What do you see about uh, the tax professionals community around the world? Uh, for example, is, is there a correlation between success of a country and development of the tax profession? Well, if you look at, I think it's, I think the, if you will say the larger developed countries, ultimately, whether it's in the economic sphere, whether it's in the political sphere, 
or it is the taxpayer have a greater say. I mean, that's just a reflection of the economic power. And I think the change that we are seeing is the shifting dynamics of the economic uh, reality, which is bringing in countries which are probably not earlier tax powers, whether it's a China or it's an India, or so therefore, as the economy of the world changes, their power equation and their ability to negotiate its changes. So I think it's a greater reflection of the economic power, which then gets reflected in their ability to have a voice in the, in the, in the tax arena. So if you see that, that's the shifting dyna dynamics that I see. And again, as I said, this is pure and simple economic reality. Mm -hmm. And just so you mentioned how easy or difficult was it to lead IFA. I mm -hmm. think I was very fortunate. I had a wonderful team uh, from my uh, from my chair of the scientific committee, Steph Van Wiegel, who was who's an extremely close friend to to the to the secretaries that I worked with, uh, both Hans and Jean Blaise from uh, Netherlands and Switzerland, and I. The, the the best part of we were more or less ad item on all. There was only one, I think, in the entire four or five years that I was in the executive board. I think there was only one issue where we had a significant uh, disagreement. But again, we worked through that, respecting our agreements. And I think at the end of the day, we we were able to 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 respect each other's principles, and. Most importantly, I think as a committee, or at least as, as we ensured that there would be no conflict of interest at any point in time, and we were, ensure, we were, we were able to ensure that, that as we led as a team without any conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a couple of questions about your CV. This uh, senior advocate and trustee of IBFD, what does it mean uh, in simple terms? Well, uh, IBFD very simply, as you know, it's a sister organization of EFA. It's the largest global tax publisher in the world, uh, and it's based out of, of, of Netherlands in, in Amsterdam. So the uh, structure of IBFD is it's run as uh, uh, by an executive board, but the overall uh, overall advisory role is of the board of trustees who give guidance to the executive board, et cetera, et cetera. So it's more fortunate. I think after IFA, I was I was not willing to take any executive role in an, any organization, and I have turned down several, but the IBFT was unique. It was more of an advisory role as a trustee that gave, I did not have to be involved on a day-to-day -day basis, but but I was involved at as a trustee level, so I took that up. A senior advocate is really a similar term that you have uh, from what we got from the British, uh, like what used to be Queen's Council and now is King's Council. So it's it's a designation that's given to to those who have achieved a certain seniority in the profession, and in India it is given by the judges. So the judges of that particular court. Um, decide who is worthy of being elevated as a senior counsel. And uh, it's a <laughs> on an amusing or a lighter note, it's a slightly elevated in the sense that we technically are not allowed to sign anything. So we are supposed to be really sort of uh, in a row, in a fiduciary role with the court. So the court can rely upon us that when we say something, 
we do believe it to be true and it to be correct. Of course, we are, we are strong advocates and we will uh, we will uh, litigate fiercely for our client. But when we say something, it would be it would it would be something that the court can rely on in the sense that we are not tied hand and foot to the client. Mm, it's very interesting. We will talk about the Indian judiciary system uh, later on, but. Um, before that, I also wanted to ask about your new position as the president of this Income Tax Appellate Tribunal Bar Association, Mumbai. What will be your responsibilities there? Well, I hope it's going to be a very quiet and peaceful post. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the Income Tax Appellate Tribunal is the oldest tribunal in India. It's called the mother of tribunals, and it was set up way in the... I mean, more than 70, 80 years ago now. And um, fortunately, it still maintained its independence from the executive. And I think the role of the bar is to ensure that the tribunal remains independent, hopefully with integrity also. And to that extent, we are, we are uh, sort of a pillar of, of the institution. To, uh, to do our best to ensure that the uh, tribunal remains, uh, remains the uh, best tribunal that is there in India and also keeps its independence. And I think keeping its independence is good not only for the judiciary, but also for a country like India, because many investors, India does not have a system where we can settle tax disputes at a lower level. So all disputes tend to go through the judiciary. And therefore, to have an independent judiciary is a huge asset that people or the investing community can rely upon in India. And there are statistics which say that at the tribunal level, anything between 66 to 75 percent of the judgments are in favor of the taxpayers. So the taxpayers have a possibility not to go through the traditional judiciary system, but uh, through the tribunal. No, the tribunal is a part of the traditional appellate system. It is the uh -huh. second appellate level before you get to the High Court and Supreme Court. But All it right. is a part of the system, yes. But it's a it's a separate tribunal, okay. independent of the executive or of the revenue department. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about your tax practice at the chambers of Poros Kaka. How big is the team you work with? And uh, I understand it's more like a sole practitioner, not a law firm, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. The way the chambers works in India is that you have a senior uh, person who leads the chambers and then you have uh, junior advocates or interns who work within the chamber. But those who work within the chamber are completely independent of me in the sense of uh, in, in the sense that they are neither my employees or, or any of them. But they would be sort of, as I deviled in my senior chamber, they would be deviling in my, in, in my chambers. And there would be a there would be an assistance or a financial, uh, I mean, this is something which I've done differently when during their the, the initial years. But eventually what they would do is after a certain amount of years, and that's what happened recently, they would move out on their own and establish their own practice. That is the juniors. Mm -hmm. It's slightly different from the UK bar in the sense that there we have a combination of seniors who create a chamber. 
whereas in India, a chamber normally consists of only an individual. And, and this uh, title of barrister uh, in England and Wales uh, does mean you also practice there? Or yes, so I used the COVID period to... Uh, <laughs> I did exams after 30 years, and it's not something I would recommend. <laughs> it was... Uh, it was a tremendously difficult experience, actually, to start uh, restudying civil law and criminal law, and 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 you know, and uh, and areas, uh, and 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 actually get into sort of being basic advocacy and stuff like that. But I finished that process during the COVID period, and I did the, the other requirements, and I and I got my uh, got my license to practice in England. So I I do go there from from time to time, but still. The majority of my 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 career is is India based, and I think that's going to remain so. The litigation mm -hmm. is significantly in India. And with all those credentials, we heard, uh, what would be your advice? How to develop a great tax litigation practice like yours? Um, so I think for a barrister, I think wherever you are, or a litigator, I'm unfortunately going to say that there are no shortcuts. A tremendous amount of seniority will come from experience. And I think the few things that I would guide uh, juniors to do is, I mean, as I said, there is no shortcuts either to the hard work, but most importantly, I think at all points in time, the juniors, especially when you're dealing with courts, when you're dealing with judges, you must remember that it is extremely important that they have faith in what you are arguing. Therefore, your integrity and the trust of the court within you is one of the most important things that will carry you further. So I think if you try to play fast and loose, you may win one or two cases, but you will certainly be the loser in the long run. Because if the judges start losing their trust in you and doubting what you say, you're not going to have an extremely good career. Right. It's and all some about other things is I think when yeah. you mentioned, for example, uh, the, the 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 language issue. Again, depending on the language of the court that you are you are appearing in, and it, it as I said, it could vary from country to country. But I think to be able to have uh, a, a good diction in wherever you are appearing in whatever your language is is extremely useful. And I learned this from my father. Who, no matter how senior he was, would spend probably half an hour, at least a week, reading aloud in English exceptional diction like Churchill or something like that to my mother, who had better diction than him. And and I continued that tradition. And I found that when you read exceptionally good literature in your language, and you read it aloud to someone who has better diction than you, you will be amazed how your diction improves in a, in a very short time. But again, this has to be done for a consistent period of a year or two, but it, it significantly will assist you, especially when you're dealing with courts that depend on oral arguments. Hmm. I was reading aloud Indian fairy tales to my kids, but, uh, but not Churchill yet. <laughs> so, so, but that's a good idea. Maybe they get uh, asleep uh, quicker. <laughs> well, I would strongly recommend uh, Churchill's war books. I think they are not only fascinating for the diction, but they are 
you are reliving the entire and at least for people like based in Europe, it, you, you probably be able to identify it, but you're reliving each experience one at a time of, of the Second World War and you go through the depths and you go through the heights also in those books. Great advice. I also saw some really big names among, among your uh, clients in tax litigation like ESPN, JP Morgan, Maersk, Siemens, FedEx, McKinsey. Tell us about your most uh, challenging or interesting tax case you, you have had. Literally when I came back from Harvard, I think within a maybe a few years after that, I had a unique opportunity to be an uh, international expert in an arbitration in London. And it was involving a large public sector undertaking in India, which had been directed to pay out a huge debt. And it was fascinating because we felt at that time, and maybe we felt correctly, that there was some connection between the public sector undertaking and the Indian revenue, who were trying to do everything to prevent that debt being paid, creating withholding demands. So while the arbitration was going on in London, we had the suspicion that the revenue was sitting in the next room with the with, with the with the with the public sector. And it was such a I mean, this was absolutely live litigation where it was timing of when, when the order came, when the English courts would enforce it, and would it ever get paid? And 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 that that was that was an amazing uh, amazing. But otherwise, tax litigation. I mean, you know, it's 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 it's, it's great. I've had some of me my uh, my finest cases where I've literally started from scratch. If you look at the Sanofi case. Uh, or many of the names that you've already mentioned, you literally start out. And in India, we had the advantage of transfer pricing. When transfer pricing came in in 2002 into India, no one knew what it was. We had very little literature, so it was literally being thrown into the swimming pool and you had to swim. And today, when you see the amount of judgments that there are we have and i think the credit for this has to go to all the sections including the revenue who have raised some of course some rather aggressive demands but some unique uh, angles to transfer pricing the judiciary who has excelled itself because we really started out and of course to the bar so transfer pricing is a unique area where literally india started out and today we have a case and sometimes on a lighter point, you may have a case which answers yes and no on both on the same issue. But we have a tremendous depth of judicial judicial material on it. If you want a light uh, light uh, case, I was arguing again in my junior days uh, before a very strict member of the of the of the tribunal, and the issue was of the fact that a particular wedding had been completed and there had been no expenditure shown. So the, the suspicion is that if you had or you've got married and you've not incurred any expenditure on your wedding, then obviously you funded it from undisclosed sources or in cash or whatever it is. And therefore they would make a notional addition of what they thought you would have expended in, in outside, outside the books. So finally, when we reached the tribunal, we were able to show the judges that no, we had found evidence and, and, and invoices that the wife had spent on, on a hotel and on a five-star hotel and all. And the, and the surprise from the 
quote that I got was they thought this was wholly sexist, wholly chauvinistic. And they said, but Mr. Kaka, how can a lady alone spend the entire expenditure? Because I was arguing for the for the for the husband and I had to reply. I said, your, your honors, I am not either supporting the system nor arguing in favor of the custom, but I'm only arguing a tax case that here are the invoices. They said nothing doing and I lost the matter. Not on the fact that we were able to prove that the expenditure was there, but because this was a wholly sexist custom. So these are I mean, a few and far between amusing wow. cases uh, that I came across. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing how also the culture impacts the tax judgments. And uh, this is quite an interesting story. At IFA Mumbai, I heard somebody saying that uh, in India, it takes about 15 years to litigate uh, a tax case. Is it still so? And uh, if, if yes, why does it take so long? Unfortunately, it is, is so. And I think the, the, the problem is really today the tax tribunal has done. So you get up to the second appellate level within maybe two to three years, uh, given given your strategy. But then there is a blockage from the tribunal to the high court. There is a huge backlog in some of the major high courts uh, of the country, including uh, the Bombay High Court, including uh, Chennai, including uh, in Delhi is a little bit better than that. So some of the major high courts have huge amount of pendency. And I think it's just the fact that we've not had sufficient judges to look at them. And that's the problem. Then the next level from the High Court to Supreme Court again, there is there is a delay. So I'm afraid uh, I'm afraid this delay continues to exist and 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 it's to a certain extent unfortunate. But for most clients, I think they 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 concentrate to get to the tribunal level and to see that they are getting a good and a fair tribunal order, which is which is the first priority. Mm. Any business principles or uh books or business gurus that uh, have helped you to get where you are and, and that you could recommend to our listeners? So again, I've already mentioned uh, mentioned uh, Churchill. I think uh, I, I enjoyed reading that. Um, uh, one of the, uh, I was very fortunate about maybe four years ago to meet the Dalai Lama in person. Mm. And it was such I have been staying in a particular hotel in Delhi for many years, and I know that he used to stay there also. But I tried to meet him on many occasions, but it just didn't work out. Finally, uh, I found out the night before he was staying, and again, I requested it. They said he was not able to meet me, but they said the next morning, perhaps he would meet me. And this was the first time I think I got up at 5 a.m. By 7 a.m. I was in my suit. <laughs> I was ready to, in case he met me. And he actually came and spent some time with me. And I cannot say how wonderful it was and what an aura that person has. Because it was one of those days where I was literally just happy, happy, happy the whole day. It was, and he spoke about my religion. He spoke about my customs, and uh, and I still have uh, lovely photographs of of that meeting. So I was, I think, I was very, very fortunate to be able to uh, meet uh, this kind of a person individually. 
As far as reading, I used to be a voracious social reader before I entered the legal profession. I've read everything from and I've read authors. So that means every single book I've read Agatha Christie, I've read James, uh, James Herriot, I've read Robert Ludlum. But now I do no social reading. I think we have so much reading that we have to do on a daily basis that if I have to do or to unwind, I will do anything from Netflix too. But I won't. I won't pick up a book. <laughs> sure, sure. But from this uh, meeting with Dalai Lama, you said uh, he spoke about your religion and culture. Do you do you remember some thoughts that still make you? smile or or feel happy yes so actually we have a unique uh, unique uh, 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 so we zoroastrians we worship fire and in most of our fire temples we do burn fire and uh, and uh, and his holiness was of the view that perhaps now it's not environmentally friendly to con continue that tradition and not only that um, he sort of uh, he had some unique uh, ways he put his uh, he sort of put his arm around me and 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 i've asked many of the tibetan tibetan friends uh, that i have a few of a few of them as to some of the gestures that he made and and i'm still confused whether they were a blessing or they were but it was uh, it was a unique meeting and i think uh, i consider myself very fortunate to have to have met the person right any other tax-related story that comes to your mind? Uh... I think today, when I look at, suppose we were to uh, look at India, you are well aware of the Vodafone saga in India, the retrospective amendment. So I have a tangential take on that, in the sense that everyone thought that was, you know, terrible and it was wrong, etc., etc. I believe in a tangential way, that was good for India only in the sense that there was a belief, and I think that belief sometimes goes through all countries. Sometimes there's a belief that, you know, we are we are so powerful, and I think there are very few countries who can have this belief genuinely that we can do anything and upset the entire entire world community. And then there's a realization process that no. We are a part of the world community, and I think no matter how we exercise our sovereignty, there are certain limits to that sovereignty. And I do believe that it probably was a costly, but it was a growing up lesson, lesson, uh, lesson for the country. And I think to this extent, today we are wiser in our experience, in, in our experience for that. So I think it was a costly, it was a difficult lesson. But it was, as I said, uh, a lesson that I would say that we, we, we grew up from. And perhaps, therefore, the current disposition of the current government have taken a view that, no, we will now not do anything which is uh, retrospective in, in that sense. The second issue that I would look at is sovereignty. There's a huge issue on sovereignty in the global tax world. Whether you look at it from the point of the developing countries and arbitration, which they are reluctant to get into, or you look at the US Congress and especially the Republican side of the US Congress, and when you look at the, some of the discussions on, on pillar one, et cetera, et cetera. And I do feel that sovereignty sometimes is used to really justify what political steps that you wish to take or, or, or do. And 
Most countries have given up sovereignty. Every time you sign a tax treaty, you give up sovereignty. There's no doubt about that. So when you are willing to sign or willing to enter into tax treaties or global tax commitments, you are giving up sovereignty. So then this is something which is used perhaps when you wish to uh, not negotiate or, or stay away from something that you dislike. Uh, so, so I do feel that 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 issue of sovereignty is there, and on the current tax developments. Uh, now, just just to step back in 2015, I was fortunate to give the David Tillinghast lecture at the NYU. My good friend David Rosenblum had invited me, and I. It took me a year and a half of work on that, and I I I, I tried to find out the meaning of the word source. And when you look at the word source, which is a huge global dispute today, I mean, today pillar one is all about source, whether market countries should have the jurisdiction and whether market should itself be a source. So again, I think when you look at look at some of the tax disputes there are in the world, business understands where they fall. But I think the political definition is still to be negotiated. So if you just look at pillar one, we are changing our concept of source. And again, I say when I say changing, I'm not meant, uh, meaning it in a disparaging term. The reason is I do feel that there must be a credit given to the market countries, considering the amount of sales that are happening, and more importantly, considering that business today does not need a permanent establishment to be able to operate in that country. You have, you can operate uh, completely online, and therefore the old treaty principles of permanent establishments have, have not changed, whereas business has changed completely. So I can understand that shift, but where will it take us and, and how far is, is really something which will be negotiated at the political sphere? Um, and uh, we will have to see how it goes. Strangely, I don't see much discussion going on on pillar one in the global community. A lot is happening on pillar two. And for the developing world, I think the pillar one is, especially for the market countries and the larger countries, is, is, is important. And India has its own uh, digital service tax. Uh, do you suggest for the other countries what to do now while uh, negotiations are on on pillar one? Do they have to implement the uh, digital service tax so to have more cards when they sit at the table of negotiations? So I think if you are interested in Pillar 1 and you are interested in it happening, I think you need to keep the cards that you, you can negotiate with. And one of the cards is undoubtedly digital service taxes, whether you agree, uh, whether you agree, uh, agree with it or not. The only thing that I have reservations is most countries have put this DST as sort of outside the tax treaty. It's still an income tax, but it's outside the tax treaty. It's non-creditable. It's non-creditable within the treaty or it's non-creditable within, within domestic law. And the fear that I have is if pillar one does not happen and DSTs pro proliferate, then rapidly we will get from where we don't want to be, which is the world of double non-taxation, to clearly the world of double taxation without credit. Mm. And I think that's a very scary, uh, scary place because when you have taxes outside the treaty, which you cannot get credit for, 
and these taxes are at the gross level. Few countries start, even if it's like 5%, 6%, 2%, if 10 or 15 countries start putting this on, on your gross revenues and you can't get credit, you will rapidly be in a state of uh, double taxation in a very short way for business. And that I think is a fear. So I think there must be an effort to, to do not reach that world, uh, no matter how much the revenue does not like the world of double non-tax. And I remember when I started out my career, I had this fascinating argument with some of someone who I highly respect in the tax world, Professor Hugh Alt in Vienna. And I was just a junior. This was in 2004 in the Vienna Congress in, in, in Vienna, the IFA Congress. And at that point in time, I was proud to say that there's nothing wrong with double non-taxation and it's just a matter of negotiation and stuff like that. And Hugh had a slightly different view. And of course, he was kind to a, to a junior, to, to far more to him. But today the world has changed and I think there are concerns both in the public, both in the uh, in the in the global community and and I think in larger sections of the tax paying individuals that when individuals pay a certain amount of tax, others like corporates cannot get away with double non-taxation because of the power that they have. So there is a legitimate fear. Only concern is please do not end up in a world of double taxation, which was really the objective of international tax treaty law and negotiations. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Vodafone case, uh, one of the famous ones uh, coming from India. And uh, I saw in one of the articles you said that one can find in India's judicial orders perhaps at least one judgment on every troublesome issue under the sun. India seems to be quite advanced in tax theory thought development. How so? So the only cause for this, as I said earlier, is we do not have a system of settling disputes at the lower level. So every single issue that is raised by a revenue official will get settled by the judicial process. Fortunately, we have a relatively completely and I mean a relatively independent judiciary, and I think that's the asset that India has to protect. But because of this system, every single thing filters through the judiciary, and therefore, at I mean, people have made quotations that today, 75% of the reported judgments of the world, be there on international tax or on transfer pricing come out of India. And wow. I think that, yeah, that's these are the statistics that we are looking at. And even when I speak to the learned judges from India, I think the caution that we give them is the, the, the fact that it's not only the Indians that will be reading your, your, your cases, especially on international taxes, the global community. But I must give credit to our judiciary that they have acquitted themselves very fairly. And when you look just at the judgment of the Supreme Court in Vodafone, this was a huge issue. This was a political issue. And yet the Supreme Court had the courage to decide completely in favor of a large multinational. And I think that's whether you like the judgment, you dislike the judgment, you agree with it, you don't agree with it, but you have to give credit to the fact that the judiciary can be completely independent, which is an asset that we need to hold on to. And in one other article, you mentioned that looking back at 20 years of litigation since the 
transfer pricing came to India. This reveals that the commentaries in the uh, OECD transfer pricing guidelines become more subjective and more favorable to the revenue. Do you think uh, this can be effectively used in the courts to discredit the uh, OECD transfer pricing guidelines? Well, not to discredit, but to use it to. So again, if you will see the guidelines as the, as from 2017 onwards changing from 15, 17, even if you just look at the discussion on risk. So now the commentary seems to indicate that you don't only look at the form or the contract, but you look at where the actual risk lies between the two parties. Now, where are you going to find that? Because suppose I say that I'm completely insulating you from risk and the contract says so, and we will give you a cost plus markup and no matter what, what, what are the risks, you will still always get that markup. But now the commentary seems to indicate moving away from the objective test to a more subjective test of substance over form. To find that is going to be hugely litigious. And therefore, my concern is that as you do water down some of the subjective, uh, objective parts of, of transfer pricing regulations, you are certainly going to increase uh, the litigation that is there because then the fallback or the commentary that you rely on as, as, as a practitioner is too vague or lacks clarity. And it can have two meanings. And when you always say that it should be always substance over form, no one's saying no to that. But when you say that you can ignore or 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 at least put contracts aside and look at the substance behind the contract, you're going into an area which is going to be impossible for the tax practitioner, for the client, and also for the judges. And uh, continuing on transfer pricing, uh, how do you see its relation to Pillar 2? Now it's quite clear it's coming. Will the Pillar 2 at some point put uh, transfer pricing into the trash bin? <laughs> I don't think I... I don't think I have an answer for that because I think everyone's uh, trying to find and see where, where where they end up. But right now it seems to be a unique combination of some formulary apportionment plus the arm's length principle as yet. Um, as to when they completely disregard the arm's length principle, I have no answer for right now. But uh, all I can say is that it's hugely complex. I mean, I I really hope that they have an effective settlement procedure or a, or or a, or a dispute resolution mechanism set up because otherwise if you're going to leave it to the domestic courts of 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 all the various countries you're going to have a nightmare for for tax practitioners I mean for the clients and the taxpayers. Yeah. Well, it's going to be fun for tax lawyers. That's for sure. Uh, I would tell any tax lawyer, don't worry about your future. <laughs> Actually, in the in the previous podcast, uh, we discussed the artificial intelligence uh, advancements. Uh, I started to read uh, the book uh, the guest suggested, and it's it's amazing how this uh, artificial intelligence is developing. Uh, and I, I even got scared at some point <laughs> about what my kids will do in, in, in their career. But um, 2023 has just started. So how do you see the uh, distant or not so distant future in uh, tax systems uh, developing? Uh, what's your prediction? 
So the way I look at it, and I've seen this for the last 20 years, because we have these LPOs in India, which are legal processing, uh, like the BPO, which is the business processing outsourcing unit. We have the LPOs, which have been working. So basic contracts been outsourced for years and being done by non-lawyers, being done by machines, being done by non-practicing persons and, and being sent back. So I think there's a huge risk that the day-to-day -day routine functions will be done in by in in the future by computers as opposed to interns or junior advocates, and I think that's a concern. But I do feel that there are professions like doctors, like lawyers, wherein the ability to, at least at the senior level, the ability to imbibe the, what a judgment says and to put it across will require human element that the computer will not be able to give because today two of us could read a judgment and take out two different things from it and the ability to take that out and put it in because it's not that the same judgment means x y z to all hundred people which it would to a computer and therefore i think wherever you bring in the human element there the experience will come in and to that extent, I think the senior parts of the profession will be will be immune to it. But I can certainly see that for basic basic drafting, basic stuff, there is a huge risk that uh, that uh, artificial intelligence will will somehow affect uh, the affect the affect the at least the basic parts of of our profession. So yes, there is a concern, but. I mean, what can you do? You can't stop it. This this is a process that you have no control over, and therefore you just have to be one step ahead of the machines. <laughs> I'm not. Right. I hope I'm not sounding like the Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, definitely. And at the end of the, our discussion, on a lighter note, uh, I, uh, I found some uh, tax-related uh, stories from India for you, and there are actually quite many of them. In the book, uh, Rebellion, Rascals and Revenue by uh, Joe Slembrod and uh, Michael Keane, we had a nice chat at some tax stories episode as well. And uh, and in their book, uh, they say that uh, in 19th century, peasants in India were taxed for wearing jewelry and growing moustache. And in uh, another story, the book also says that uh, women of some low castes uh, uh, that time in 19th century were taxed for covering their breasts while going outside their homes. And uh, later, a woman uh, called uh, Nangeli cut her breasts in protest to the tax and died because of the bleeding. And uh, she was cremated and her husband jumped into the fire as well. And uh, the next day, the tax was abolished. But I saw some fierce discussions on LinkedIn about this story. Do you think that was true? I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I've read, <laughs> I've heard about these crazy stories. I mean, we have, I mean, there's been crazy stories about taxes. In England, there used to be a tax on windows. So therefore, you see many of the old English places which never had windows, they had only walls. So you have these crazy systems of, 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 of tax. Uh, but I think we haven't given up crazy as far as tax goes. I mean, just look at pillar one and pillar two. I mean, when you yeah. see the complications that are going to come, and then you must remember today we have pillar one, pillar two, we have the MLI, and then you have the basic tax treaty below all of this. 
So you have a structure of four treaties sitting on one of the uh, one of, on one on top of it. And believe me, it may not be as crazy as what you mentioned, but it's hugely complicated. So 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 we haven't given up crazy as yet. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And there was an interesting episode also about the empire of great Mughals, uh, which was uh, between 1526 and 1709. And uh, they had some interesting taxes like jizya. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, that tax imposed on non-Muslims uh, as means to convert them to Islam and zakat uh, tax for Muslims, the tax uh, revenues of which should be spent on charitable purposes. Do you still have some strange taxes left in India? No, I don't think we have any of those. Uh, we have those. Uh, I mean, we have lots of uh, unusual things, but we don't have any of them. The only equivalent I can see is that now under the Indian corporate law, there's a compulsory requirement of the companies that are covered to spend 2% of their income on corporate social responsibility. And that hmm. requirement can be anything. Uh, there are guidelines. It can be environment. It can be, but it's basically on 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 uh, on social requirements, and that's that's a requirement that they have to spend every single year. So two percent of their revenue has to go on what they call CSR. And therefore, if you are an organization that is, is in environment or is in charity or is supplement of the poor and all, this is a valuable. Uh, valuable resource that you can rely on. And again, this is I think is a is, is probably a positive development. Uh, the only thing is that uh, sometimes people say that you can't force us to do something. You must leave it to be voluntary. But again, we can have that debate separately. Well, Porus, it's been a great pleasure of talking to you. And this one hour somehow disappeared. But um, at the end, of course, uh, there's always the same question to all my guests. Uh, what is your version of meaning of life? What would you say to that? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you asked tax lawyers this question and you got an answer. <laughs> Some uh, interesting ones. So I think, uh, I don't know, I think you're probably asking what, 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 what do I enjoy? So again, I've given you, I've given you the fact of spending time with, with, with the rescues. I do enjoy traveling. I do, I do enjoy, I do enjoy, I do enjoy eating well. Um, I enjoy, I, I enjoy a good, good, good wine. Um, I don't think I have found the meaning of life probably to give you this answer, but I think, uh, to go home satisfied in the evening at the end of the day and uh, and probably have a smile on your face is more than what we can probably ask for. Great, great reply. Boris, wonderful talking to you. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate that and hope uh, to meet you in Ifa Cancun and, and have a joint glass of wine. Thank you, Janice. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Good luck. Look forward yes. to seeing you in Cancun. Bye-bye. <laughs>